rich scripture. It's a familiar one. Starting with the 25th verse. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to see the, pre, the foreshadowing of the death of Christ here. Most, many people miss this. The word inherit means in the Greek, receive by casting lots. It's nothing that you can achieve. It's something that you get. And our inheritance only fully comes to us when someone dies. And so the word inherit is very, very meaningful in this context. Most people say, well, if Jesus was the Christ, why didn't he say to people, what you really need for eternal life is to believe in me? We hadn't died yet, and they couldn't understand how that would be. No one could understand what it was like to put their faith in someone who was still living and who would come back from the dead. So until Jesus died, putting your faith in Christ meant no, or putting your faith in Jesus for eternal life would make no sense. So anyhow, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And, and, the, and the, the, the Greek literally means, um, how do you repeat? In other words, I know as a lawyer, you have memorized this. This is the Shema. This is, this is what Jews repeated three times a day. Tell me, what, tell me what is the foremost law. And he repeated it just like that. And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord with all your, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and, this is from Leviticus, your neighbor is yourself. And he said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, a couple of things are happening here. First of all, he's saying to him, you already have the basic answer. If you, see, if you love God, you will come to me. You will end up with me. If you don't try to protect a religion, but you go after a person, you will end up with Jesus Christ. I don't care where you start out. I don't care where you start out with a religion, even the Christian religion. If you don't go after God as a person, and you go only after a religion, you won't end up with Jesus Christ. You can keep all of the religions in the world, including Christianity, and not have eternal life. Because... God is a personal God. And so he's saying, no matter where you start out, the important thing is to love God, and you'll end up with me. The second thing he's saying is, you don't need anything else. You've got all you need. Just do what you have. I heard a sermon about a, a preacher once that had gone to a church. It was the first Sunday, and he stood up and he preached this sermon. It's a great sermon, good sermon. And the congregation went out and said, well, this guy will be all right. You know, he's going to be all right. I, I like that came back the next Sunday and preached the exact same sermon, word for word. Well, everybody looked at each other, and they, you know, they cut him some slack. They said, well, he's been, you know, he's been moving in all week and <clears throat> you know, probably didn't have time to get another sermon. You know. And it was a good sermon. It was a, it's a good sermon, and, and so um, that, that's okay to hear it. Came back the third week, preached the exact same sermon, word for word. After this sermon, a deacon went up to him and said, uh, Reverend, uh, can't help but notice that uh, <laughs> you've preached the exact same sermon three weeks in a row. When are we going to get another sermon? 
And the preacher replied, when we do this one, we'll move on. <laughs> Not a bad system. Not a bad system. Jesus was saying, you already know it. Do it. Do it, and you'll live. Um, and it reads on. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, a lot of times you will hear pastors say or, or, or teachers say, this guy was really some sort of scoundrel that really wanted just to, just to embarrass Jesus or to really dig down and show that he knew more in Jesus and so on and so forth. I don't believe that. You know, I have this tendency to believe the best about everybody, and I believe the best about this guy. The fact is that there was always an interpretation of the law. And it was where you got on that interpretation so that you could know that you were all right. Now, here's the human tendency. The human tendency is, what is the least I can do and still make it to heaven? That's the human tendency. That's, why, that's what all this discussion about eternal security is all about. You realize that, don't you? That's not a theological discussion. That is, you know, can I do this and still go? Well, how about this and still go? Miss the point entirely. Miss the point. I, you know, I, I will hardly talk with anybody about eternal security anymore without details. You know, because that's what we're really talking about is the details. So the lawyer might have been saying, okay, what's the least I can do and still get there? More probably, he was saying this. Well, the Pharisees define it one way, you know. And, and what neighbor had become to the, at, the, at this point was kind of, in Americanese, it would be, I feel close to you. That was, you know, that's our famous, oh, I feel so close to you. And that would be neighbor. You know, how, who do you feel close to? For a Pharisee, a neighbor would be everybody that could keep the whole law because that was, that's what they were into. And so a shepherd, i.e. ones watching their flocks by night, who couldn't keep the whole law because they didn't have the water to ceremonial, ceremonially wash their hands and so on and so forth, wouldn't even be their neighbor, even though they were Jewish. They wouldn't be a neighbor. To the Jew, even though Scripture has it, that the resident alien should be treated as a neighbor and should be offered hospitality, they were out of the category a long time ago because why? We don't feel close to them. And so what this guy is really asking is how broad do the boundaries have to be? I want to know. Tell me honestly. Who do I have to love in order to fulfill that commandment? And he was interested in obedience. And Jesus replied and said... <clears throat> Certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, literally, this is true. Jerusalem is at 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,300 feet below sea level. That is, in a, a, a matter of a little over 20 miles, a difference of 2,600 feet. And so it's a winding road down. And it has always been a dangerous road because there are rocks on either side of the road. And so it is very easy for robbers to hide in those rocks. As a matter of fact, it was called by the early church fathers the bloody way because people were always getting robbed. People were always getting attacked. And so this certain man, and, and notice he doesn't categorize him. doesn't say whether it's a Jew or a non-Jew. 
As a matter of fact, he's even stripped and beaten, so you can't tell who he is. You can't tell who, who you know, the guy's asking for categories, and Jesus isn't going to give him any. He says it's just a guy, just a man. That's the only thing we know. So he's going down, he gets attacked, he is stripped, beaten, robbed. And they went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, <laughs> I love this, by chance. Now the, the Greek word is literally coincidence, which is two incidents intersecting. Now, some of you believe in chance, and some of you believe there is no such thing as chance. Let's compromise. <laughs> Let's say there are chances that are very meaningful. <clears throat> My mother-in-law call them, calls them godadents, not accidents, but godadents. Um, let's say that these are very meaningful chances. A certain priest was going down on that road when he saw him and he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and he saw him, passed by on the other side. Now let's stop right there. Why? Well, the traditional thought again is, you know, the priest didn't want to touch a dead body because it says in Numbers, I think it's 1911, that if you touch a dead body, you're unclean for a week, and so he wouldn't be fit for service for a week. And he had some duties to get to, some religious duties to get to, and so he didn't want to mess up his life. He didn't want to become ceremonial unclean. The other theory is that very often on that road, one of the robbers would pose as someone who needed help. And when someone went over to help him, the rest of them would jump out. In other words, you had a decoy situation. And they were very, very afraid that that was a decoy and they would get attacked. Maybe that was the reason. By the way, a priest was somebody, of course, who conducted services in the temple and in the synagogue. And a Levite was a lay priest. It was someone who, we have a hierarchical system here, someone who was an attendant. Uh, those of you who used to be altar boys or those of you who, uh, and I, you know, I did, I wore the robe and the thing, you know, and did that kind of, you know, lit the candelabras and then went out and threw gum in girls' hair and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's kind of like, a, it's kind of like an attendant. You help with the services. So that's who we're talking about. <clears throat> You know, I wonder if it was either one of those reasons. When I look at people and the reason that we avoid hurting people, that doesn't ring true. The device that I see in our lives, more often than not, to hurting people, to avoid our involvement with, with them, is rationalization, analyzation of the situation. Instead of identifying with, we analyze why. In other words, when we see somebody hurting, we say, well, I'll tell you why they're hurting. Well, really? Tell me why. Well, you know, I'll tell you why that guy left her. She was always just jabbering at him and bickering at him and so on, and that's why. As if that's an excuse not to help. I'll tell you why he left her, because he never grew up. That guy, he was a kid his whole life and he couldn't take the responsibility. And so he left her. As if that was an excuse 
not to help. As if that made any difference. As if we are so peachy, creamy to live with. But I tell you what, I tell you why that guy's laying there all drunked up. It's because he drinks too much. Brilliant. And I'll tell you why he drinks too much. Because he can't control his appetites. Yeah, he isn't in control of his appetites. I remember one church, there was a guy chasing every single girl in the place. And I finally went to him. I said, brother, that's not what church is for. And he looked at me just real plain faced. <laughs> Didn't know any better. He said, well, I may, I may be single, but I still got my desires. <laughs> I said, well, that's fine. But uh, not interested in your desires, you know. So anyhow, i tell you why. Because those appetites. They got those appetites and they don't control those appetites. That's why people are drunkards. They ought to control them like me. Let me ask you, how much overweight are you? How many times have you quit eating sweets? How many times have you tried to stop gossiping? You know, there's an appetite for that. How many times have you stopped feeding on your own anger and sworn off it? I don't want to be that kind of person. There's an appetite for that. How many times have you sworn off your addiction to soap operas? There's an appetite for that. We're not talking about the difference between having an appetite and not having an appetite. We're talking about the difference between appetites. We're talking about the difference between desires. You see, for the priest and the Levite to say, it's this guy's fault. That's why he's down there. The idiot should have known not to come down a dangerous road like this. They had to admit, we're on the same road. You see, what we've got to realize about people is that they might be 20 minutes ahead of us or a half an hour ahead of us on the road, but we're on the same road. There isn't a different road. And there, but by chance, go us. Well, I tell you, they'd have a better life if they could just get it together. That's the problem. Just get it. If they could just decide what would make for a good life and be strong and do it, that would that'd fix it up right there. How many vows have you made to the Lord and not kept? You knew. You knew that's what God wanted. God, from now on, I'm going to read the Bible every day. From now on, I'm going to pray to you 15 minutes a day. I know you want that. It's a simple thing. I can do it. I've just decided that's what I'm going to do. From now on, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to talk with my kids because this is an important time in their life. And I'm going to talk to them about you because nothing is more important than them getting to know you as Lord and Savior. And that's what I'm going to do. Let me ask you, have you got it all together? <laughs> I haven't. I keep deciding things every day. Never can quite get it all together. I'm on the same road as they are. Their attack is a little bit more plain than mine. Their injuries are a little bit more socially unacceptable than mine, but I'm on the same road. And any time I look at somebody and say, well, it's our own darn fault, 
I may be partially true. That statement may be partially true. But I've got to realize they are me. They're just another form of me. When Jesus said, whatever you would have people do to you, do to them also. The golden rule. He was saying the important thing when you see hurt is not to analyze it. Unless you're a professional counselor and they are asking for your advice and they want to know so it doesn't happen again, that's not the important thing. It's to identify with it. And understand that if you had been walking in their shoes in that spot, the same thing could have happened to you. No one is exempt. We're on the road. That's what the priest and the Levite didn't do. Their fault, I tell you. Okay, let's go on. But a certain Samaritan. Now, you've got to get this picture. (laughs) These people hated Samaritans. And Jesus primed them for this. You know, you've heard the old jokes about, well, there was a priest, a rabbi, and a minister. You know, you, you, you just go down the line. And whichever you are, that always comes last, you know. If you're Roman Catholic, the priest comes last. If you're Protestant, the minister. If you're Jewish, the rabbi comes last. And, you know, they're, they're the, the punchline of the, of the thing, see. Well, here are these regular, here's this, this uh, uh, lawyer, but he's not a priest. And he probably has a little bit of resentment. Most people have a little bit of resentment of religious authorities. You know, kind of like, who do they think they are? So when the priest doesn't do right, he's kind of feeling pretty good, you know. And when the Levite doesn't do right, he's feeling okay too, you know. And he's thinking to himself, and it goes like this, priest, Levite, Jew, and he's a Jew. So he's thinking next, here comes the Jew, and they're going to be the ones that are the hero of the story. Here I come. And Jesus says, and then there was a Samaritan. Well, I don't know how many of you saw Ernest Goes to Camp. But there's a part in that movie when he looks down in the toilet and he looks up at the camera and he goes, That's exactly what this guy, when Jesus said, and there was a certain Samaritan, he felt like going, A Samaritan, you know, just really grossed out. A certain Samaritan who was on... Samaritans were so looked down upon that they could not even offer testimony in a Jewish court. If there was a murder and a Samaritan was an eyewitness, he could not go in that court and say, I saw this guy kill this guy. You might as well have no witnesses as a Samaritan. That's how much they were disregarded. That's how much they were disrespected. And so Jesus puts in this guy. Now, here's the point of this. Very often, Jesus used people's prejudices to teach them a lesson. Very often, Jesus said, if so-and-so does such-and-such, how much more should you do such-and-such? That's exactly what he's doing here. He's saying you don't even respect a Samaritan, and a Samaritan's doing the right thing. How much more should you do it, you who are a Jew, who know the correct theology? He didn't, he didn't know the correct theology, but his credit was good. <laughs> he, was, he, had a good he had a good rating as, in the, from the American Business Association. This guy did not know how to worship God, according to, to John, uh, the, the discourse in John. 
But yet he did right. And so Jesus is looking at this attorney here. And he's saying, this guy did right. How much more should you do right? How important is it? Let me ask you that question. How many people have you known in this world that didn't have a Christian bone in their body? I mean, they believed in God. Most people believe in God. I think the current stats are 96 or 98% believe in a God of some sort. But God is not the center of their life. They're not saved. They are not following Jesus Christ. Jesus is not the Lord of their lives. But they are some of the finest, nicest people you have ever known. You know if you ever had a need, you could go to them and they'd give you literally the shirt off their back. You, n- you never hear them talk about, bad, bad about other people. You never see them trying to get things for themselves because they have learned somewhere along the line to be kind and to be gentle, in our president's words. They have learned somewhere along the line to have an open and generous heart. There were people in my family. My grandfather was one of them. I never knew where my grandfather stood with the Lord. He died before I could ask him. Never knew what was in his heart. But I know Jesus was not the center of his life and that Jesus was not the motivation and the supernatural empowerment for what he did. But I know that there was not a kinder man in all the world than my grandfather. He was, he was the nicest person. And you know, <laughs> that's not a reputation that a lot of Christians have. Should have, but we don't. A little child's prayer once said, Lord, make all the bad people good and all the good people nice. Because somehow, you know, when we get to be Christians, we get to be holier than thou, don't we? And we start explaining how the world falls apart because everybody's sin and we're so much better off and so on and so forth. And Jesus is saying, you want to be holier? Be healthier. Be healthier. That's a, that's a term that we coin here. Jesus is saying, look to me, look at your grandfather. And you're reluctant sometimes to give. Can't you give at least as much as your grandfather? All of us can. You know why? Because the Bible says we never need to be reluctant to give. We can always be generous because the Bible says that if Jesus is the Lord of your life, you have every need pre-met in him. Now let me ask you, what are you going to lose? What, what's your fear? What's going to be taken care of? If you have all of your needs pre-met in Jesus Christ, Matthew 6, 30, where he's talking about Jesus, you know, you know the, the Lord takes care of the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and they don't worry about anything and they don't toil and they don't spin and so on and so forth. How much more? See those words again? Will the Father take care of you? Seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory. Not all your desires, but all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now watch. You will never have a physical need or a spiritual need or a social need or an emotional need or a psychological need or any other kind of need, financial need or whatever, that God will not supply. That is already promised in Scripture. What makes us stingy? What makes us reluctant to help? 
Well, I don't know. I might need that, that money later on. You never know what's going to come down. No, you don't. You've got everything you need later on. You've got everything you need later on. Well, I don't know. I just can't listen to people's problems day in and day out. I need, to, I need a, a, an emotional reserve, you know. I can't do it. I get too depressed. Yes, you can do it. All of your needs are met in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that you can give away that you will not have returned and renewed in you if you wait upon the Lord. It's promised. There is absolutely no excuse for a stingy Christian. None. Well, I just get tired of people calling me. You know, how many, how, how many phone calls do you get a week from the firemen and the policemen and the, you know, we're putting on a circus for sick children and would you buy, you know, five spaghetti dinners and so on and so forth. And, you know, the, the flesh in us starts to, starts to dry up, you know. In, in, in Greek, it's, it's, uh, it becomes poneros. It says the evil eye, the poneros, the stingy eye closes down and the whole body becomes full of darkness. We get scared. Don't ask me. I haven't got an, I, you know, I'm, I'm under financial strain myself. I'm under an emotional strain myself. Quit asking me for everything. Well, I tell you what. Christians ought to be the most hilarious givers in the world. Somebody called me from my college Oh, hi. They, they call this Wednesday. Was it Wednesday night? I think it was. Phone rang. It's for you, Dad. <laughs> First time in years. <laughs> it is? You know, I should have known it was a salesman. But anyhow. So, I, you know, this sweet little voice on the other end calls. says, Hello, Mr. Hunter. I'm calling from Ohio University. The weather is cold up here. And how is it down in Florida? That's how they always begin. Weather's great down here. It was stinky, but I thought, you know, give her, give her what she wants to hear. Then, <clears throat> then she said, well, this is just wonderful. Are you still a pastor at uh, Southport United Methodist Church? Now, this was 15 years ago. I started laughing. I said, no, I'm a pastor at Northland Community Church. She says, oh, well, let's just talk about that. Is it a big church? That's how the world, that's the first question the world always asks. Is that a big church? I started laughing. I said, nah, it's not a big church. Long silence. Well, I'm sure it'll, it'll be fine. And, and just goes, <laughs> goes, goes on to something else. She says, well, the reason I'm calling is because of our alumni fund. She said, now I see here in my records that in 1973, you generously gave us $10. I burst out laughing. I was so ashamed, $10. I mean, I used to spend, when I was in college, I spent more than $10 a week on cigarettes. I, I tip waitresses more, and we all do tip waitresses more than $10 when we go to a place where we don't have to unwrap our food. I mean, it's, you know, that's just 10 What kind of cheapskate am I? And I started laughing, and then I recovered myself. And I said, well, I don't even see why you're calling all the rest of these people up. $10 ought to be able to last you. She rescued me. Bless her little heart. She rescued me. She said, well, now that was very generous and you didn't have to give us that. I said, come on. She said, well, we're asking all of our, all of our alumni to double their. I said, great. I'd love to do it. Send me the envelope. I'll give it. Long silence. She said, my, this is a lot more fun than the last phone call I had. She said, he had his children locked in the basement. <laughs> I said, Really? How'd he do that? Can, I, can you give me his number? No, I don't. <coughs> no. 
But I said, I'm just, I feel so cheap. <laughs> I said, I'm so glad you called. Thank you for calling. Hung up. I tell you, I felt good all night long. And she felt good all night. I, it was, it was a chance to share with her that Christians are givers. You know what really kills me is when people try to get a bargain because they're Christians. They call it, we're from a youth group. Do you have any discounts there? You know, if you're a Christian and you identify yourself as a Christian, let me give you another line. What do you usually get paid? I'll pay you more. What do you usually get tipped? I'll give you more. Because the spirit of Christianity is one of generosity. What are you trying to save? You already have all your needs met. For the rest of your life, it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. Don't be cheap. With your money, with your emotions, with anything, with your time, God gives you everything you need. Well, the only other thing to figure out then is how to respond. You see, the case was pretty obvious here. You know, it says, uh, you know, uh, he came to him, he bandaged him up, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. He himself took care of him for the evening. But it was not the kind of situation where he himself literally needed to stick with the guy. Most of you think, well, I can't, be, I can't be involved in this situation for the rest of my life. God's not asking that. Just as long as it's necessary. It was only necessary for a night here. Most conversations you have with people are only necessary for a short period of time. And then it says, <clears throat> And the next day took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... When I return, I will repay you. In other words, the guy's credit was good. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And literally that means which one was a part of the guy who was wounded, who, who became a part of him. Now, it's important when you decide you're going to do something, and I hope you do. There's a bumper sticker out I love. It says, lead, follow, or get out of the way. I love that bumper sticker. Do something for crying out loud. Do something. Don't stand back and say, well, I'll think about this a while. Everybody thinks about it a while. Do something. And if the Lord leads you to pray and not to offer counsel, pray. Don't say to somebody, I'm going to pray about it, and then not pray about it. Get a list and pray. And by the way, prayer is the, not the least you can do for somebody. It's the most you can do for somebody. But if the Lord leads you to answer a physical need, answer a physical need, but please remember that most real needs are not physical. They are for support. I remember when I was a little, not a little kid, I was in high school, and one of the kids' dads died suddenly. I think we were juniors. And just out of a panic, you know, we wanted to do something, so we collected. We thought, oh, golly, the breadwinner's dead. You know, this is how mature we were. The breadwinner's dead. They're not going to have groceries. So we collected enough money and went out and bought them a bag of groceries. <laughs> instead of flowers, instead of saying, you know, we really, you know, we'll be with you, we'll be praying for you, and so forth, we took groceries over. Well, you know, we did our best. That's, we were trying to do something, and I'm sure they understood but the main need at that time was not for groceries. 
I heard a story one time about uh, a Father Demetrius who was a priest in the Eastern Orthodox Church. And his secretary, who was poor, lived with her parents who were also very poor. And their home and all of the contents of their home burned down. Now this priest in the Eastern Orthodox Church had a reputation for wisdom and for compassion. And he wanted to respond. He didn't have much money on himself. So he went down, and I want you to listen to this, to a jewelry store. Now they've just lost all of their belongings. They have no food. They have no extra clothing. They have no furniture. They have no lodging. Went down to a jewelry store and bought this secretary a ring. Figure that one out. Somebody went to him and said, Father, you know, you have this you have this reputation for being wise and compassionate. Why did you buy her a ring when her needs are so physical? And he said, well, I didn't know whether or not this was the right thing to do, but I did not want to buy her a gift that would remind her of her poverty. I wanted to buy her a gift that reminded her that she was loved. Nine times out of ten, it's the most valuable gift you can give. Just for someone to know they're loved. Could we just take a few minutes, just right where you're at this morning, to pray? And then we'll have an ending song. Just to pray that God would not make us rationalize our way out of situations where we could offer compassion or analysis in a situation where love was called for. Would you pray with me? Father, even as I stand here, I know that I am one of probably several people who have tried to think of rational excuses not to get involved in someone's life. I am no better than the priest, no better than the Levite. But Father, I know that in Jesus Christ, you have made me much more able to give than the world. Help me. Help us all to identify ourselves in someone else's hurt and to love them even when we don't know the right words and to show them that we care even when that care we know is not adequate to meet their needs so that somehow they can remember that you are there that you are the resolver that you are the supplier that you are the resource that they need to come to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't follow your sermon outlines in your bulletin too closely. You know, I, I, I do those by Wednesday. And those are usually pretty technical. I give you what you would need to study that scripture and pull out of it the meanings, the original meanings of the words a lot of times. But God continues to talk between Wednesday and Sunday. And so uh, many times on Wednesday you get the Logos and on Sunday you get the Rhema.
Um, let's just go down a very familiar scripture and see if God will speak to you directly. I tell you what, I would, I would really like the opportunity to, to stop and pray for a moment because this is a, this is a momentous Sunday in our nation for a couple of reasons. And uh, we didn't mention it during the first service, and, and it just occurred to me um, that it would be good to stop and say a prayer um, for um, those outside of the walls of this body in appreciation for what's going on. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is a special Sunday for a couple of, of, of uh, observances. First of all, it's Human Life Sunday, and we do pray that you would make us all mindful of the lives that you begin and of the very, very important choices we have and that you would give us a spirit of protection for the innocent and that you would help us to adjust to your timetable and adjust to your um, plan and not our own. We would pray that you would make us so very sensitive to all of life, to those born as well as unborn, to those hurting as well as well, and that you would give us a tremendous, awesome, majestic sense of what you have created in each human being. And secondly, Lord, as a nation, we celebrate the inauguration of a new president, George Herbert Walker Bush. And according to Timothy 2, Lord, we pray for the leader of our nation. We pray that you would grant him wisdom and that you would grant him compassion. We pray that you would guide him in his relationship to you. And we pray, Lord, that we could be um, citizens that would participate fully in the lives of our community so that we can take responsibility for the world that you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the scripture. Starting with verse 25, and I'll just preach as I go, teach as I go. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test. When, you, when we were doing that 60s song, by the way, I was thinking, you know, the beat is kind of like a temptation's beat, you know? I <laughs> I was thinking we probably ought to have four guys up here in cellophane suits or whatever, and, you know, doing this. But we couldn't call them the, testa the, the, the temptations. We'd have to call them the testings because, you know, you can't call a group in church the temptations. And it, it, in Greek, it's testing anyhow. Certain lawyers stood up, put them to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a very, very important question and I want you to see the phrasing of this question because there's a certain amount of foreshadowing in this question. First of all, the answer, you know, how do you read? What does it say? It literally means how do you repeat? A good Jew had Deuteronomy, this verse in Deuteronomy in things called phylacteries and they were tied to his wrists or to his forehead. 
And this is literally, they would repeat this. This is the Shema. They would repeat it three times every day. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy strength, with all thy mind. And the the second comes from Leviticus, and that's uh, Leviticus 19. Thy neighbor is thyself. And so Jesus says, well, you tell me what you already know. Now, there are many new Christians who wonder, why didn't he say, believe in me? I mean, if Jesus is the way to salvation, why didn't he say, believe in me? Well, they wouldn't have understood. He wouldn't have known what it was to place his faith in a resurrected Christ. It hadn't happened yet. So there is a word here that gives us some inclination of what's going to happen because the word is inherit. Now, you can have part of your inheritance up front, can't you? I mean, your parents could give you a good part of your inheritance right now, but you could not have your full inheritance until what? Until they die. Somebody has to die in order for someone else to inherit something. And so Jesus Christ was to die so that they could inherit full eternal life. Now, I want you to see his answer. Because it means two things. First of all, it means that people who seek after God, people who love God and not religion will ultimately come when Jesus Christ is offered to them, will ultimately come to Jesus Christ. If you love God in a personal way and you are not trying to protect a religion, you will come to Jesus Christ. The problem is most people have a religion they try to protect. Most people have a, you know, no matter what kind of religion it is, um, uh, Chatra is uh, from Sikkim, in the north side of, of uh, India. I heard, listened to him, wonderful talk last night. Um, um, that's mostly Buddhist. And you know, and he, said, he will tell you how fiercely they defend that religion. The Jews were so threatened by Jesus Christ. And they killed Jesus Christ because they were defending their religion. Could I also say to you that there are very many Christians who would defend Christianity and don't know God personally. They would live or die for their own brand of Christianity. There are people who get all upset because they can't have things that are dear to their religion to them. That's one of the, uh, the, one of the reasons a church like this is so unusual. Those of you who are charismatic, you, you know, many people need a traditional charismatic church where everybody's raising their hand or speaking in tongues or, or, or whatever, you know, and it comes at a certain time in the service. And so you being here says, no, I, I want to seek God personally even more than what I'm used to. Those of you who are Baptist you know, need that altar call right at the end of the service because that is what happens in a Baptist church. And so when an altar call does not happen every Sunday here and you continue to come, one of the things you're saying is, well, you know, I, I'm, try, I, I'm sensing God personally here instead of my religion and being comfortable with my religion and my brand of Christianity. Those of you who are mainline and have no idea what's going on here, you know, <laughs> you know you're saying... You know, you don't, you know, you, you can hear the traditional, you know, wasn't that a beautiful, I'll tell you, the hymns have such deep and lovely words. But you only hear maybe a traditional, one or two traditional hymns out of all the songs we sing, and the rest of them come straight from Scripture, and, and you never know quite what's going to go on. And, and it is a big, 
big adjustment to come to a church like this from a traditional... I was traditional Methodist church for 15 years. I know I was high church, wore a robe. I know what it is. That's a threatening thing. But what you're saying is, no, there is something even more important than my tradition of Christianity. And that is knowing God personally. And I'm sensing this is where He would have me know Him. And I would sense that he would have me come to him personally. And so Jesus is saying by that, not just do what you've always done out of a reaction, just love, you know. He's saying actually love God with all of your heart. See? And all of your strength. All of your mind. See? Now, that was an automatic automatic for that guy. He says, Jesus said, you know what it is. Now do it. Well, that's the tough part, isn't it? That's the tough part. Because what Jesus was saying, the second thing Jesus was saying is there, is you have enough right now. Right now. I know that all of us come, well, I was going to say all of us come to learn. Actually, statistics say that most people don't go to church to learn. They go to church to have their beliefs confirmed for them. So that's why they pick out the churches they do. I want to hear a preacher that will tell me what I already believe. But many people go to church to learn. But they get in this mentality that in order to have a full, to be a full Christian, I've got to learn more. You know, if I learn just a little bit more, then I can really be a Christian. Jesus is saying, now you know right now what you need to do. I mean, basically, you know enough right now to be full. And that's what he said to this guy. You, you know it, now do it. I heard a story once about a preacher who had come to a church, preached his first sermon. It was a great sermon, neat sermon. People laughed and said, good sermon. This guy's going to be all right. Came back next Sunday morning. He preached the same sermon, exact, word for word, same sermon. Well, the people had compassion. They said, well, you know, it's his first week here. He's probably moving out. He probably couldn't get a new sermon. And he got in a pension, so he just preached the same sermon. Third week, they came back. Same sermon. Well, one of the deacons went up afterwards, said, uh, Reverend, uh, I don't know whether you've noticed or not, but we've noticed that this is the same sermon three weeks in a row. When are we going to get another sermon? And the pastor replied, when we do this one, I will move on to another one. <laughs> Not a bad system. <laughs> Jesus was saying, do that. You know what it is. Do it and you'll live. Well, then the lawyer went on to say, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Now, there are many interpretations of this. Many people think that this guy is just out to show himself off at the expense of Jesus and so on and so forth. No, the mentality was really to define things back then. And the, the word, the Greek, means one who is near you. But what had happened is the same thing that has happened to our word of love. It, what, it, it, it did not become a, a stable entity over the year where it was predictable and it was a matter of will. It became a matter of feeling. You know, well, I just don't love him anymore. You know, which was, which was other words for 
I don't feel close to him. And that's what this, this word neighbor had done over the years. And so people had different categories of people they felt close to. And he was simply saying, which category is true? The Pharisees did not feel close to even the Jews that could not keep the full law. The shepherds out in the fields that could not wash their hands ceremonially each time they ate. They just didn't have the equipment to do it. And so even the Jews were divided from the Jews and they were not neighbors. In Leviticus, it says very plainly that the alien, you are responsible for the care of the alien or the transient among you. But by that time, they had not taken responsibility for them anymore because they didn't feel close to them. And so basically what this attorney is asking is, how big is the circle, you know? For whom am I responsible and for whom am I not? The bottom line of the question is all of our questions. Listen to this. I've heard this asked in so many ways, but never in plain words. Let me just put it in plain words. What is the least I can do and still get to heaven? What is the least I can... That's, that's a, a question of human nature. What is the least I can do and still get to heaven? See, he was trying to see if he'd done enough. That misses the point entirely, but that's a point. That is a question all of us have struggled with at one point or another. Well, Jesus tells a story. <clears throat> he was a great storyteller. Jesus said a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, notice there is no category here. He's saying, give me a category. He's not going to give me a category. He doesn't tell if the... If the man was, as a matter of fact, he got robbed and stripped so you couldn't even see what station in life he was in, whether he was Jewish or not. You couldn't tell anything about him. There was no category there. Went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, this is literally down because Jerusalem is approximately 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho is 1,300 feet below sea level. There's a 2,600-foot drop in 20 miles. And so the road is literally down through the desert. There's a mountain, there's all kinds of rocks around. And it was always known to be a dangerous way. The original um, uh, church fathers called it the bloody way. It was just a very good place for robbers to hide and come out from the rocks and attack and rob people. So it was a very dangerous way. And this guy was traveling alone. It was his own fault, right? Well... <clears throat> so there's a, a certain man traveling down and they stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now let me tell you what's happening here. Have you ever heard the old jokes about, well, there was a priest, a rabbi, and a minister? You ever heard, heard that? <clears throat> you know, whoever is listening to that gets the end one. If you're a Protestant, it goes a priest, a rabbi, and a minister. If you're Jewish, it goes, there was a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. If, there's, you know, if you're Catholic, it goes, well, there's a, a rabbi, a minister, and a priest. Anyhow, you kind of build up to your category. Here's a lawyer who is a Jew. He is not a priest. And there was a hierarchy at this time. And it went priest. Levite, Jew. 
And so Jesus is beginning to build this guy up, thinking that he's going to be the hero of the story. His category is going to be the hero of the story. He says, well, there was a priest and a Levite. And I, and I don't mind telling you that human nature is that we don't mind seeing other categories get knocked a little bit. And so the guy was not too hurt when in Jesus' story the priest didn't stop. Yeah, those, you know, we have this thing about religious authority. We kind of like to see it knock down a couple of pegs. I mean, we really do. Yeah, they think they're so great. They're not so great. Same thing with a Levite. Levite was a temple attendant. He wasn't as high as a priest. He's kind of like an altar boy. Or kind of like a, have you ever been, were you an altar boy? I was an altar boy in a Methodist church growing up where the little rogue went in, did that thing, and then went out and threw gum in girl's hair. And, but it's kind of like the assistant, you know. So you were, and, and, and uh, who has that song? Oh, boy, there's a, just a creamer of a song. Little altar boy, won't you pray for me? Andy Williams, remember him? No, you guys are old enough to remember him. But little altar boy. Oh, it's like, oh, it just, I'll, I'll loan you the record of Christmas. Anyhow, so these are two guys that are, that are bigger than he is in, in, the, in the religion thing. See? And they don't do it right. Now, let's just stop right here and ask yourselves, why didn't they do it right? Why didn't they do it right? Well, there are a couple of traditional explanations. One is that it says um, in Numbers that for a priest to touch a dead man, he would be unclean and unfit for ceremonial duties for seven days. And so the priest, if if he was on his way to do something religious, would have contaminated himself. And so he actually had a religious reason for not doing what he was doing. Have you ever thought up maybe a religious reason for not doing what you're supposed to do? The human mind is a wonderful machine. Wonderful machine. And most of us can think of a reason why God wouldn't want us to do what we know we're supposed to do. That's one explanation. And and the Levite would be the same way. The other explanation is that they, you know, on this road, it was very common to have decoys. You know, one of a, of a band of brigands lays down in a road, and when somebody comes to help him, everybody else hops on him. Now, that's a common sense thing. See, you don't want to put yourself in danger. So you wouldn't, and so, so you think in your mind, well, the guy's a decoy. Therefore, I'm really doing the right thing. Let me tell you a third possibility. And this is a possibility that I see us doing more often than not. Instead of identifying with hurting, we analyze what went wrong. I'll tell you why the guy's laying down there. It's his own fault. He knew the road was dangerous, came out anyhow, and so he's laying in a heap on the road. It's his problem. He got himself into it. Let him get himself out of it. I can't interfere with God's theme of suffering here. It'll teach him a lesson. See? How many time, How many people do you know their first reaction to suffering is to analyze why it happened? Is that yours? Many times it's mine. Well, let's just see why this happened here. You know, so it doesn't happen again. The problem with that is this. That if the priest was saying, this guy shouldn't have been out on that road. If the Levite was saying, it's his fault for being out on this road. What they are not admitting is that they're on the same road. And the guy was just 20 minutes ahead of them. 
and it could have been them. Now listen to me while I tell you this. Every time you hear yourself say, well, I'll tell you why he left her. Because she nitpicked at him all the time. She was never satisfied with anything he did. And that's why he left her. Would you realize also you're on that same road? I'll tell you why I left her, because he, he never grew up. I mean, he was a kid. He never grew up. That's the problem. Men never grow up. They never take responsibility. Would you realize that, yeah, you may be looking at a situation where you can come up with some truthful answers as to why it happened, but there, but for the grace of God, go you. How many of you men have not grown up yet? You and your yellow Jeeps. <laughs> you know? How many of you women who say, I would never gripe at my husband, but gripe to your husband about everything else? They're just 20 minutes ahead of you. Well, I'll tell you why the guy's an alcoholic. Because he drinks too much. Brilliant. <laughs> he just ought to not give in to his desires. You've got to learn to control your desires. How overweight are you? How many times have you sworn off sweets? How many diets have you been on in the last year? And you're criticizing the alcoholic? He's just got a different addiction. It's not a matter of having an addiction or not having an addiction. It's just which addiction do you have and is it more socially acceptable? How many of you have tried to swear off gossip? It's an addiction. How many of you start sweating and get nervous when you can't see your soap operas? It's an addiction. One's more socially acceptable than the other. But watch this. Watch this. When we analyze what's wrong instead of identify with people, we've got to realize they're just a little bit farther down the road than we are. And they ran into circumstances that we could have run into. I'll tell you why people mess their lives up because they haven't decided to stay straight. They haven't decided to get their lives in order. Well, you know, some of that's true, and that's what's dangerous about this whole process, is that some of it's true. There are good consequences for good decisions. There are bad consequences for bad decisions. And nothing can stop the consequences of our decisions. But it's the attitude of Christians that is so raunchy. How many times have you made a present of, of a promise to God and you couldn't keep it or you didn't keep it? How many times have you said, this is it, I'm getting my life together. I mean, I am getting, I am tired of this and I'm getting it together from now on, one, two, three, go. 
Is it together yet? See, when Jesus said, whatever you would have someone do to you, do to that person also, he was giving us the key to our response to people's problems. And that is to identify with them and to know in our hearts that the very thing that they got trounced for, we're on the same road. We have the same tendencies, we have the same temptations, and there but for the grace of God go we. So there isn't any such thing as whether or not they deserve help. It's just what kind of help. Just what kind of help. And then a certain Samaritan. It says, this, is, this kills me, by chance. See? Some of your Bibles say coincidence. The Greek is a little bit more um, favoring coincidence. And coincidence is just the, inter, is just the junction, the interlinking of two incidences. Now, there are some of you who think that chance happens in this world. I mean, we live in a world of chance, and that's the way it goes. There are some of you who believe that there is no, nothing that happens by chance. God controls every little thing you do. I'm not going to argue with either theology. For this morning, let's just say there are meaningful coincidences. And this one is a meaningful one. A certain Samaritan who was on a journey came up from him came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Now, this is what Christ is talking about. So much compassion that down in verse 36, Jesus says he became a part of the one. He became at one with he who had been attacked. Compassion is not pity. Compassion is saying, we're brothers. We are sisters. This, I am at one with you. When you hurt, I hurt. You know, Calvin Coolidge was just about the most laid-back, mellow president we ever had. And when somebody first suggested that Calvin Coolidge could ever run for president, everybody laughed. The guy had absolutely no personality. He said, who in the world, somebody said, who in the world likes Calvin Coolidge? And there was a little girl in on that conversation. She said, I do, because I had a bandage on my finger, and he is the only person who asked me what happened. That's what I'm talking about. Compassion that notices. That notices. And so, there was a Samaritan that came. Now, I want you to see what's happening here, too. First of all, the guy's getting built up. Here comes the Jew. He's going to be the hero skips right over the Jew category and gets down to the Samaritan category. Now, Samaritans were hated. They were so disregarded that they could not even offer evidence in a Jewish court of law. If, if the only eyewitness you had in a murder was a Samaritan, you didn't have any evidence. They could not testify. That's how disregarded they were. And so when Jesus said, and a certain Samaritan came up, well, this guy's all puffed up waiting for his hero role, and there was a certain Samaritan. He did. I don't know how many of you saw Ernest Goes to Camp. There's a part in there that Ernest looks in a, in, in a toilet that he's trying to unplug, and he looks into the camera and he goes, Eee! 
That's exactly what happened in this guy's heart when he mentioned the Samaritan. Ew, a Samaritan. Cooties. The, he, he just was dumbfounded that Jesus would even point to a Samaritan. Now watch. This is what's happening here. I don't want you to miss this point. Because you need this point in order to understand this whole scripture. Many times, Jesus doesn't say just, you ought to do this. He says, if they do it, how much more should you do it? See? If a Samaritan who doesn't even have the correct theology knows enough to help somebody out, how much more should you do it who are a child of God? How many of you people know somebody or many people in your life who Christ is not the Lord of their life? I mean, they believe in God because 98% of people who live in this world believe in God. I mean, you've got to be kind of goofy to have no hint that they're... I mean, you've got to be anti-believing in God before you can not believe in God. But you know that Jesus is not the center of their life. He is not the reason that they do anything. And God is kind of a peripheral thing. It's me and the, me and the guy upstairs. You know, it's one of those kinds of religions. Yeah, i got my own religion. Me and the guy upstairs. But yet these people are kind and loving. When anybody gets in a jam, they're there. You know if you got in a jam, they would literally give you the shirt off their back. There's no, there's no religion there. There's no supernatural love. There's no character of Christ. But they love more than Christians. How many, Christian, how many Christians do you know? They're absolutely snitty. There was a little girl's prayer said, Lord, make all the bad people good and all the good people nice. You know? And that is real. Absolutely real. It was an attitudinal thing. Well, what Jesus is saying here is, how much more should you be able to minister love? Because you do have God first in your life. Being Christian, is no, there's no time to be stingy. No time to be stingy. You know, Scripture talks about having the, a hoplos, a wide eye, a good eye, so the whole body is full of life, and having a poneros, a, a evil, a stingy eye. And those who have a stingy eye, just a little bitty eye. Their whole body is full of darkness. And Christ is saying here, open up, cheapskate. Come on. Come on out. There is no reason for you to be stingy. You know why not? Because every need you have as a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if He is Lord of your life, every need you have or ever will have is already pre-met in Him. You know, Matthew 6 says, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. They don't toil or spin and the, the Father takes care of them. Now listen, how much more will He take care of you? Every need you have is pre-met in Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory. Every need you have, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, is already supplied. Your physical needs, your financial needs, your emotional needs, your social needs, your psychological needs, your spiritual needs, every need you have is already met. 
Now let me ask you this. If it's already met and it will always be met, what are we saving up for? What are we trying to hold back? What's somebody going to take from us that we can't afford to give? It's our flesh that gets all stingy, you know? I mean, I know everybody, you probably had 15 phone calls this week from the firemen and the policemen and the, you know, somebody's doing a circus for crippled kids and so on and so forth, and, you know? And as soon as we get that, we, we get all uh, caught, well, I really have a lot of needs right now, and I, you know? It's like somebody's going to, listen, Christians ought to be more generous, more happy to help than any other people. So important. I had a call this week for my old, I did my undergraduate work at a high university. And this li, I got this call in the middle of the week. <clears throat> and one of the kids said, it's for you. <laughs> I couldn't believe it either. <clears throat> <clears throat> I should have known it was a salesman. <clears throat> Little tiny voice on the other end. Mr. Hunter? Yeah. She said, I'm calling from a high university. And it, the weather's terrible up here right now. How is it down there in Florida? I said, wonderful. It was crummy, but they want to hear it's wonderful. <clears throat> she said, well, um, now are you still a uh, pastor at Southport United Methodist Church in Indianapolis? That was 15 years ago. I said, no, I am a, a pastor of Northland Community Church. Really? Well, let's talk about that. She tries to make conversation, you know, how they always do. Is it a big church? I said, nah. You know, the world always wants to know, first thing, is that a big church? You just kind of like, when you lift, how much can you bench? You know, that's the first thing that they want to, I said, nah. She, and she, just long silence. Well, well, I'm sure it'll be all right. You know, I mean, she was real embarrassed, you know. <clears throat> so anyhow, she said, well, the reason I'm calling is for the alumni fund. I said, great. She said, I, we have in our records that in 1973, this is so embarrassing. In 1973, you generously gave us $10. <laughs> I burst out laughing. I thought, what a cheapskate. I can't believe this. When I was in college, I spent more than $10 on cigarettes. I mean, you know, you and I, when we go to a nice restaurant, someplace you don't have to unwrap your food, tip more than $10. <clears throat> I mean, I, I just couldn't believe I was so embarrassed, you know? And I said, that's him. At first I started kidding. I said, well, why are you even calling anybody else up? You ought to be able to make $10 laugh. She said, oh, no. She said, that's very generous. You didn't have to give us that money. She's trying to, bless her heart, trying to rescue me, you know? I said, no, that's cheap, you know? She said, well, she said, it's very nice of you to give us that. And what we're doing right now is we're just asking if, if people would just double what they've given. I said, I'd be glad to thank. Send me the envelope. Long silence. She said, my, this certainly is more fun than the last phone call I had. <clears throat> but you see the attitude there. You know, I keep, I, I see so many Christians trying to get a deal because they're Christians. You know, hello, this is such and such youth group. We'd like to order so many pizzas. You know, uh, we're Christians. What kind of discount can you have? Golly, that's an awful thing to do. Call them up, say, what's your biggest tip? We'll double it. We're Christians. You know, I mean to tell you, if anybody should be able to give, we should be able to give. Why? Because we already got our needs met. It's already guaranteed. What are we going to lose? And that is the character of Christ. Therefore, it says, as we read along, 
And he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them, he brought them to his own, own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? It's not whether or not we help. It's with what kind of attitude we help. And it's how we help. You know, sometimes the needs seem to be very simple. And we get scared because we think we're going to get drawn into a problem that's bigger than we are. You know, I could not possibly talk to so-and-so about the loss of their child. I wouldn't know what to say. I don't have the right words. Could I say to you, nobody has the right words for that. Sometimes we don't feel like we can minister unless the ministry is a physical one because that's the only thing we do well. We operate well in the physical world. When I was in high school, we had a friend, I had a girlfriend, a girlfriend whose father died suddenly. And we panicked. We didn't know what to do. I mean, that was a heavy trip and we didn't know what to say to her. And so we thought, oh, this poor family won't have enough. You know, the breadwinner's gone. They won't have enough food. So we got, <laughs> it's embarrassing. We got all of our money together and bought a sack of groceries and took a sack of groceries of the family. Well, bless their heart, they received it and thanked it. You know, but they didn't need groceries. I mean, that wasn't their need. It's just the only way we had of responding. It's the only thing we knew, you know, take them a meatloaf. Well, sometimes a meatloaf is good. Meatloaf lasts for a long time. Depending on the meatloaf, <laughs> it could last a real long time. But, but what I'm saying to you is, this man stayed with him overnight, ministering to him, and then he saw to his continual care, you won't always be drawn into a problem that's over your head. You won't always be drawn into a long-term problem. And many times, please realize that the help they need is not physical, it's spiritual. Prayer is not the least you can do for someone. It is the most you can do for someone. And many times, people just need to know someone cares. They don't need answers. They realize there aren't any answers out there. And any answers are going to sound like a flip thing anyhow. Artificial. Let's make this problem go away. They don't need professional counseling. If they do, we've got professional counselors to help. They need somebody to love them. I heard a story one time about Father Demetrius, who was a priest in the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, very wise man. He had a secretary who came from a poor family who still lived with her family. And their house burned down completely to the ground. They lost everything. And this man, who had a reputation for both wisdom and charity, went, now listen to this, to a jewelry store and bought her a ring. And when somebody said, Father, I thought you to be a wise man. Why would you give her a ring? His reply was, this is a true story, I did not want to buy her a gift that would remind her of her poverty. I wanted to buy her a gift to let her know she was loved. That's the important thing. When you can love, 
Well, you can hug. Many times, that's all that's needed. Let's take some time for prayer now on this scripture. Especially on the closing words of the scripture. Go and do the same. And would you allow in your heart right now for God to envision in your mind someone whom you could show mercy to this week? Someone who you may have absolutely no answers for. Not even any practical help that you think is really fitting the situation, but it's a show of mercy. As usual, if we will have a little bit of music here, if it is helpful to you, it is in many traditions to come to the altar and kneel down. It always helps me. That's part of who I am. If it's helpful to you, the altar is open for as long as you want to be here. Um, otherwise, just stay where you are and let, Lord, let the Lord speak to your heart. Let, let me get us started. Father, we can think of any good reason why we don't want to get involved in other people's lives. And many of them good and religious, and many of them we attribute to you. Um, but basically, they're just going to the other side of the road. Would you make us as helpful as the lowliest person servant on earth because that's what you became. You left all in order to serve. Give us now, through the leading of your Holy Spirit, someone whom we can encourage, someone whose wounds we can bind, at least partially, someone we may be able to pray for, Someone we may be able to speak to, but someone who needs ministry that we may have been avoiding, but you don't want us to avoid them. Would you show us right now, please?